It's great to see you all here today, and to those of you who are worshiping online, we thank you for joining us. You can probably tell I have a cold. I had that for the last couple days, and uh, I'm not. I've asked Susan to be at the door to shake people's hands because I didn't don't want to share my germs with you. So that's why I'm why I won't be there today. Um, Excited about what we're walking through during Lent, and uh, just the focus on our desperate need of a Savior. And today we'll be looking at Luke 19, where Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem on what we now know as Palm Sunday. Uh, Tony Campolo, a well-known preacher and former professor at Eastern University in Philadelphia, tells a story about being asked to preach in a black church. Now, black churches are known for their enthusiasm and passion, and Campolo was excited to preach there, and so he rose to the occasion and preached with energy and fervor. And after he was done, an older black man, preacher, who was going to follow him, walked by and kind of patted him on the knee as if to say, that was pretty good, young man, but this is what a real sermon sounds like. And then the older black preacher sauntered toward the podium and began his sermon in a slow cadence that continued to build in energy and volume. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's sleeping. Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. Now, I'm not going to repeat the whole sermon because I'm a white guy with limited rhythm. Uh, I can't do that sermon justice, but I do want to share some of the lines from it. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walk into Calvary his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to the criminals. It's Friday, but Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, It's only Friday, Sunday is a-coming. Now the refrain of that sermon, it's Friday, but Sunday's a-coming, I think perfectly captures the season of Lent. Our celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter is glorious because of all that Jesus went through to reach that point. And just as the sunrise is brilliant because of the darkness of the night, Lent is a season of preparation that helps us fully appreciate what Jesus has done for us. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Last week, as we walked through the service and kind of kicking off Lent, and we did the imposition of ashes and really focused our church family on repentance, our heart in that was that as we walk through Lent, each of us are fully aware not only of Jesus' suffering and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, but that we're aware of our desperate need of him, that we're in tune with our brokenness, our need for a savior, our need for healing. Easter Sunday is the high point of the church year. It's the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But three days after he was unceremoniously crucified on a Roman cross, God raised Jesus to life. And Jesus' resurrection demonstrated God's power over death and sin and assured us that life doesn't end when our time here on earth expires. 
And another aspect of Lent that we walk through and that often is captured in that ash ceremony is the idea of our own mortality, that each of us have a limited time here on earth in our physical, physical bodies, but our life doesn't end when our time here on earth expires. We're assured of eternal life. In today's sermon, we're going to look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem at the start of Holy Week, just five days before he was crucified. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I'll begin reading at verse 28. And again, this is what we know as Palm Sunday. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany on the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you." Most of us have a general understanding of what pl- took place on Palm Sunday. The story that I just read, the story of Jesus riding on a young donkey into the city of Jerusalem. We remember the waving of the palm branches and the children praising God. But it's easy to miss the significance of what Jesus did that day and how the crowd responded if we don't consider the history behind Jesus' action. Every spring, thousands of Jewish pilgrims journeyed to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance of his people. It was one of the most revered of all the Jewish festivals. They celebrated the deliverance of 400 years of slavery in Egypt of their ancestors. On the night that the Israelites were finally released from Egypt, God brought the most horrific of his ten plagues on the Egyptians the death of all their firstborn sons and livestock. But God instructed his people, the Israelites, to kill a lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and put a stripe above their doorpost, so that as the angel of death traveled throughout Egypt, he would know which homes to pass over, thus the the name Passover. On that night, Egyptians all over Egypt lost their firstborn sons and livestock But the Israelites who placed the blood of the lamb over their doorposts were spared. And it was after this terrible plague that Pharaoh finally 
released the people of Israel from slavery. From that day forward, God instructed his people to celebrate the Passover as a reminder of their deliverance from slavery. And it was during the annual Passover celebration that Jesus entered Jerusalem on this day to a raucous crowd's welcome just days before his arrest. Now, in Jesus' day, Passover was celebrated in remembrance of what God has done for his people, but it also was a kind of a sober celebration because the people had the painful reminder that as Israelites, they were no longer a free people. They were still in bondage. Egyptian captivity had been replaced by Roman oppression. And just as their ancestors longed for freedom in Egypt centuries earlier, the Israelites now hungered to be free of the Roman oppression. During Passover, the Israelite people looked with anticipation for their deliverer. deliverer. And not surprisingly, through the years, many leaders came forward declaring that they were God's chosen Messiah, the one who had come to bring deliverance for his people. So in addition to thousands of pilgrims who had flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, Jerusalem was also filled with legions of Roman soldiers under the command of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. These soldiers were on high alert. They were guarding against the threat of armed rebellions, and they were prepared to quickly stamp out any uprising that might challenge Rome's authority. So it was into that tinderbox, if you will, that Jesus came. The popular rabbi, who'd gained a sizable following by, pre- following by preaching and teaching with authority, and performing miracles that including, included raising Jairus' daughter and Lazarus from the dead. I'd like to read Jason Porterfield's account of what took place next from his book, Fight Like Jesus. As Jesus neared Jerusalem, Porterfield writes, the people who lined his path began chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Nowadays, we use the word Hosanna primarily as an expression of praise. It has become an interjection of adoration, similar to hallelujah. But on that day, outside Jerusalem, the word meant something far different. Hosanna is the Aramaic form of a two-part Hebrew word. The verb Hosea, coupled with the emphatic particle na. Hosea means help us, deliver us, liberate us, save us. The ending na conveys a sense of urgency. So when fused together, Hosanna or Hosanna, oh save us now, or deliver us we plead, is what it means. It was a desperate cry for help. And so the crowd's exuberant praise of Jesus rested on the hope that their deliverer had finally come, that Jesus was the one who was there to rescue them. So covering the road with their cloaks and waving palm branches were actions that they assumed uh, in connection with the coronation of a king. The people were anticipating that Jesus was their king. And I want to pause there because sometimes we read the story and we say, how did Jesus enter Jerusalem on Sunday with all the people celebrating and praising him and shouting Hosanna, and then just five days later, some of them celebrated his arrest and his death? How did that happen? Well, a lot of it was around their expectation. They were expecting a king who would deliver them from the Romans. Jesus' choice of a donkey as his transportation rather than a stallion 
also communicated that this king came in peace, not violence and war. The Bible scholar J.F. Coakley writes these words, By not riding a horse, as a nationalistic Messiah would be expected to do, Jesus intended to rebuke or correct the aspirations of those who acclaimed him. He was acting out the role of a humble, peaceable king. Now, the crowd should have understood that Jesus' use of a donkey symbolized peace rather than war. But in their fervor and hunger for deliverance, they continued to hope that Jesus was going to be the one to lead the rebellion that would overthrow Rome. In his gospel, Jesus' disciple John uh, writes these words from the prophet Zechariah, and he ties Jesus' mission to a peaceful arrival rather than a warlike entrance. These words from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Aside from his unusual choice of a donkey, a young donkey for transportation, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday contained some other symbolism that wasn't quite as obvious. Sunday of Passover week was typically the first day of Passover, the day when, according to Exodus chapter 12, every Jewish family would select a lamb for their household to eat the Passover meal. And again, it was in remembrance of what they had done in Egypt when they killed a lamb and took the blood and put it over the doorpost, and then the angel of death passed over. Each family was instructed to bring their lamb through the entrance to the city known as the Sheep Gate. And as Jesus traveled down the Mount of Olives that day and into the city, it's likely that his route would have taken him through the entrance known as the Sheep Gate. To those who were paying attention, Jesus was offering self to Israel as the sacrificial or Passover lamb sent by God to take away the sin of the world. And this is kind of the clash that was taking place. You have a fervent crowd anticipating a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior who was going to finally put Rome under their thumb and allow Israel to reclaim its rightful place. And you have Jesus, the humble, suffering servant who, bring, who was bringing another kind of kingdom, a kind of kingdom that they weren't expecting. From time to time when we study the Gospels, I make reference to Jesus upside-down kingdom. And that phrase, upside-down, speaks to how radically different Jesus' kingdom and his values are when compared with the priorities of our world. The contrast between Jesus' kingdom and the world in which we live can clearly be seen in the difference between a renowned Jewish hero and Jesus. Over a century before Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in 167 B.C., Jerusalem was under the rule of a Greek dynasty. Their king Antiochus overran Jerusalem and then systematically desecrated the temple. He's the one who slaughtered a pig on the altar and sprinkled its blood throughout the temple area. All the Jews were ordered to make sacrifices to the Greek gods and soldiers were sent to each town to make sure that this decree was enforced. 
in one town, after a Jew agreed to make the sacrifice to spare his life, an old priest named Mattathias stabbed, stabbed the man to death for his tra- being a traitor, and then killed the soldier who was sent to, sac- who, to enforce the sacrifices. Mattathias then tore down the pagan altar and ran to the hills to hide, where he remained for the rest of his life. Near the end of his life, the ailing man called his five sons, and he charged them to gain revenge against the Greeks. Mattathias' third son, Judas, took up the challenge and became known as Judas the Hammer. Judas led a revolt that recaptured some of the towns around Jerusalem and reclaimed the temple. And as Judas entered Jerusalem to cleanse the temple, his followers welcomed him by waving palm branches. And from that time forward, the palm branch became a symbol of freedom, similar to what American flags are viewed by us. Judas the Hammer's bravery was so revered that in Jesus' day, over a hundred years later, the image of palm branches was still imprinted on some Jewish coins. And so there was a lot of background going into what was happening that day. Two hundred years after Judas's crusade, Jesus the Messiah, nearly two hundred years, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and he was greeted with a waving of palm branches as he rode along a path strewn with clothes and palms. But Jesus entered Jerusalem not as the hammer, but as the lamb. To a world that valued violence, force, and power, Jesus came as the suffering servant. I think that explains the radical change that took place from the crowds that welcomed Jesus on Sunday being some of the same people who crucified him on Friday. They realized that Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they had been looking for. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey as the sacrificial lamb of God reminds us of where our true salvation and deliverance lie. As Americans, we've been blessed with many freedoms, and a belief in God has been built into the fabric of our culture. And while we experience many benefits from our cultural heritage, it also comes with a shadow side. As Christians living in the U.S., it's easy for us to confuse our political systems and structures with God's kingdom and assume that worldly power, influence, and value are, and dominance are values in God's kingdom. Jesus' life, his teaching, his upside-down kingdom, his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday show us a different way. One of my practices during Lent for the last couple years has been to reread Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. If you've not read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's a great look at some of the ideas that we have about Jesus, but actually then kind of comparing those to what Scripture says. And I was reading a section of that book this morning, and he was talking about how antithetical Jesus' kingdom is to our own ideas of worldly power and influence. The Beatitudes, which Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with, clearly highlight the difference between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of this world. Many of us are familiar with the Beatitudes. Some of us were taught, memorized them as as kids. But I want you to listen to these Beatitudes, these statements that Jesus made, really as part of the DNA or the values of his kingdom. And as I read those, I want you to compare them with the value that we often place on power and influence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The thing that strikes me as I read through those statements is, that those traits aren't traits that any of us value. Who wants to be poor in spirit? Who wants to mourn? Who wants to be meek? Who wants to hunger and thirst? Who wants to be peacemakers? Who wants to be persecuted because of righteousness? Generally, those aren't values that we value in our culture. Jesus poignantly demonstrated the contrast between his kingdom and the kingdom of this world on Palm Sunday when he entered Jerusalem during Passover riding a donkey and presented himself as a sacrifice for all, the perfect lamb of God. So how does this, how does this tie in with us? What, what does this have to say to us in 2024 as we walk through Lent in preparation for each other? Well, last Sunday, we began our Lenten worship services with the imposition of ashes, a symbol of our human frailty and sinfulness. The words our staff spoke over each person who received the ashes was, repent and believe the good news. Our circumstances are very different than the Jewish people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But like them, we too need a Savior a deliverer. As we walk through this Lenten season, my hope is that each of us will be reminded of our brokenness and sin. And not just reminded of it, but that we're willing to acknowledge it, to hold it before God and say, God, I'm in need of a Savior. I'm in need of your healing. I'm in need of your deliverance. The typical response in our culture when we recognize those things is to kind of hide them. How how are you doing? I'm fine. How's everything going? Good. I'm great. We we don't let people see what's going on. We're kind of conditioned to put on a facade that says everything's okay. That uh, uh, an idea that if we show weakness or if we show pain or if we show that we're not doing well, it's a sign of weakness. As we walk through this Lenten season, my hope is that each of us will be in tune with our brokenness and sin. I pray that the misconception we have that we can somehow save ourselves will be revealed for the lie that it is, and that in repentance, which again means turning around, going in one direction and turning, in repentance we'll turn to Jesus and cry, Lord, save us. Lord, heal us. Lord, deliver us. Lord, redeem us. As we sing this song of response together, I want to encourage each of us to turn our eyes 
toward Jesus, our Messiah. And I'll invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are a king. But you are a king that comes not to fulfill our felt needs and the desires that we think we have, but a king who reaches into the deepest parts of our heart and meets us at our real point of need. The reality, Lord, for each of us is that we're broken people. We're sinful. We're desperately in need of a Savior. We need to repent. Many of us here have accepted you as our Savior. We've repented of our sins and turned toward you. But I pray that that posture of looking for your salvation, of walking in repentance, would be one that characterizes each of us because we're still people in need of a Savior, still people who need your healing and restoration. Lord, I pray that you would meet us at our point of need today. Uh, we claim the promise of your word that says, if you turn, when we turn to you, you will turn to us and lift us up. That you look to the humble and you hold the proud at a distance. Allow us to come before you in humility, knowing that you will lift us up. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.